Welcome back to Miradas, a podcast about Latin America. I'm John Bartlett, and this week I spoke to Megan McDowell, a literary translator based in Santiago, Chile. Megan has translated some of the most important and influential contemporary Latin American writers, including Argentine authors Samantha Schweblin and Mariana Enriquez, as well as Chilean writer Alejandro Zambra. Her translations have won the English Pen Award and the Premio Valle Inclán, and she has been nominated three times for the International Booker Prize. Megan and I discussed her career in translation, the unique context of the countries she works with, the importance of her relationships with her authors, and how more women than ever are seeing their work published and translated. This is the last episode in the current series of Miradas, but remember you can catch up with all the others on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever else you might be listening. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Megan. It's great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing as well as can be expected. Thank you very much for having me. Good to hear. How have you found the last year then in, in Santiago? Well, it's been pretty intense. Um, time has passed very quickly and very slowly at the same time. Um, but I've spent a lot of time working, which has been good. I'd say working has, has pretty much saved me from going crazy in the pandemic. But it's it's been it's been both good and bad. You know, being in Chile has been it's been very interesting. Um, it, it was it was interesting to live through the the constitutional um, process at the same time as the U.S. election. I don't know. It's been a very it's it's been a very intense year politically. I guess. Yeah, we're recording this as well, you know, only a few days after the, the storming of the Capitol and things in the US. So I think it's been a, a tumultuous year for a, anyone that's based in, well, Chile and the US. I think it's been particularly, particularly difficult. Um, but yeah, thank you for making the time to speak to us. Um, so I'd like to start off then. I'd love to talk about your, your career um, and how you kind of ended up uh, translating the writers that you're, that you're now working with, uh, many of whom are from the Southern Cone, many of whom write kind of shorter novels. So I wonder if you could just give us a bit of a background as to your trajectory, to your kind of current, current uh, sort of status. Yeah, and ended up is a, is a good verb to use there because, um, you know, there's, there's not really a clear path to becoming a literary translator and, and it tends to be something that, that, you, that you kind of stumble into. Even in my case, where I was very interested in literary translation from the start, first as a reader, and then I, I originally kind of wanted to work as, a, as an editor and, and focus on, on translation, because I was really interested in bringing the literature of other cultures into English. Um, the, the thing I did that was a little weird is that my, I was very interested in translation before I knew another language. Um, so I started learning Spanish kind of late in life. Um, and, you know, looking backward, I, I can kind of impose uh, a sense onto what I was doing. But at the time, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I, um, you know, I, I studied English literature in school. I, did, I had a couple of internships at publishers. And I got it into my head that I needed to learn Spanish in order to work as an editor of, of translation. Like I wanted to be able to read in another language. So I moved to Chile, not for any real reason, but because I was really interested in, in Argentine literature. I, I loved Cortázar. And, you know, I originally thought I would move to Argentina, but I had a really good friend who had lived in Valparaiso and he 
you know, talked it up a lot. And it was, we had these plans to move to Valparaiso and, and open up a cultural center and, and buy an old hotel in the port and turn it into a cultural center. It just kind of turned into my dream to move to, to Chile. So I did that and I spent three years, you know, learning Spanish. I worked as a, as a translator at a British shipping company for a while. And then I decided to move back to the States and, and do a master's degree where I focused on literary translation. But even then I, I, I wasn't sure that I could be a translator. I, I still had it in my head that I was gonna focus on, on work in publishing. Mm -hmm. So, that was when, but I was very lucky, you know, living in Chile um, opened up a whole new world to me. And when it came time to choose a writer, I came to Chile and I, and I talked to a lot of people. I've talked to editors and readers and booksellers and, and I asked them who are the interesting writers today, you know, younger writers. And, and I, I heard a lot of names, but they all coincided in Alejandro Sombra. So I started translating him for a workshop in grad school. And, and, and I, I was very lucky because my first book translation that I just started working on in a, in a class ended up being published with Open Letter Press. And you know, from then on, I, started, I worked with Sambra from then on. And, and my focus on, on Chile, you know, I had this, kind of intimate knowledge of Chilean Spanish. And so people started asking me to translate other Chilean writers. And then that kind of opened up to Argentine writers. And, and so I just ended up specializing in the Southern Cone. It, you know, it wasn't necessarily something that I intended to do, but um, I'm, re I'm really glad I did. And it, it, has, it has worked out very well. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So you're obviously, you know, you say that it's kind of opened up a whole new world uh, to you when you moved to Chile. Um, and obviously, Chile and Spanish is, as I know, and as you, as you very well know, uh, is one of the most difficult kind of almost sort of dialects, isn't it? You kind of you travel around the country and you hear all these new words that if you've learned Spanish elsewhere, um, to me, it was it was a complete shock kind of getting there and thinking that I spoke reasonable Spanish and suddenly not being able to understand or really communicate with anyone particularly uh, very well. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I found, I found it really difficult. So, you know, you talk about, you know, the sort of the, the creative side of, of translation then, and the kind of, how do you navigate the, the various kind of contextual difficulties in, in Argentine Spanish, uh, in Chilean Spanish? How do you kind of convey these things in a way uh, that's obviously faithful to the, to the original author, but then, you know, is intelligible for, for English speaking audiences? Yeah, well, I mean, there is, there is no one answer to that. You know, you, you have to go, you kind of have to, you, you just have to respond to what the text is asking for and find solutions according to each issue problem. Um, I, I learned Spanish here in Chile, but I'm, I'm still learning it. You know, it, you're, never, you're never done. And, but the Spanish that I have in my head is, is Chilean. And when you translate a Chilean t book, novel, story, it is almost inevitably really tied up with Chilean culture. Um, so there's, there's a, there are a lot of things that you have to be sensitive to. You know, you have to be sensitive to language, um, the music of the language, the sound of the language, and the, 
and also what kind of beats beneath it, um, which are very tied with culture. And, and the more that I live here and the, the more intimate I become with Chile's history and, um, and its context, the better I am at doing that. And the more free I feel to get quote unquote creative. Um, because, because then I, I understand what, what a text really needs. Also, it's very helpful that I work closely with my writers. Um, you know, they're alive. So I can ask them things. Um, for me, it's really important to know what was going on in the writer's head when they were writing. So I can ask them, you know, like, what was this character thinking or, or what were you thinking when you wrote this? And, and I also think a lot about what, the, what a, a Chilean reader would know and not know, like how they would read something and try to recreate that, or at least be aware of it and know if I, if I have to explain something that isn't explained in the, in the Spanish. Um, I know all of this is very abstract. Um, the, the book that I always use to, to illustrate this is this book, Multiple Choice by, by Alejandro which in Spanish is called Faximil. And it's, it's a very experimental book. It's structured like a, a, a multiple choice test that is, um, it's the test that students take before they enter college. And it, it has a lot of wordplay. It plays with rhyme, it plays with double meanings. Um, so in, in a way there are sections that are, it's kind of like translating poetry. And there's no way to translate, quote unquote, literally. Um, I could never sit down and, and like, if you compare the, the two texts, no one's going to say, oh, this is the translation of this. But you have to take a step back and, and look at the approach and the way that Alejandro was playing with Spanish. And then you kind of have to play the same way in English. So what we ended up with was maybe something like a version of of the Spanish, because you know I was using the resources that that English has, and but that is that's an extreme example of what I'm always doing when I translate. Um, you know, sometimes you can translate more literally. Sometimes the pr translation process is a little more straightforward, but but it, you're always making decisions. You're always making choices, and. Um, the choices that I make are not the same that, that someone else might make, even when to me, it seems obvious. Like my English is, is my English and I have to be aware of that. Um, in terms of faithfulness or fidelity, I think that is the word that always comes up when you're talking about translation. And people think they have an idea of what fidelity is or what faithfulness is, but it's, it's a really slippery idea. It's a really slippery concept. And, you know, I always say that you have to, you have to really know what you're being faithful to. You know, it's not a one-to-one -one literality, or at least it's not for me. There are people who have had that approach, but you're being faithful to the spirit of the text which sounds a little maybe silly, but, but you're, you have to be very sensitive and, and understand what the text wants to do. And then you have to do that in English. Um, and sometimes in order to do that, you have to move a little further away from, from the original. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? 
Yeah, definitely. And just to kind of contrast that with what you were saying about how as you kind of you get more experienced and the more you translate, you feel that you're, you know, you can be a bit more adventurous, you can be a bit more creative with your with your translations. How do you then kind of con- contrast uh, that approach with this kind of, you know, sort of almost sort of fundamentalist sort of, you know, kind of uh, faith or fidelity to the to the original text, particularly in terms of, you know, kind of settings that that perhaps obviously living in Santiago, you know, a lot of the places that, that Zambra, for example, writes about and, and all of your your other Chilean writers, you know, to what extent are you kind of taking the words, are you taking the words in Spanish and then putting them into your own experiences? I think that it's, it's, it's almost very difficult to separate the author uh, from the translator isn't it and I know there's no kind of uh, kind of golden answer to that but I think it's an interesting kind of uh, concept to, to drill down into. Yeah I return again to, to this idea that I that I work I, t- I tend to have relationships with the writers that I that I work with mm-hmm. and that to me is very important. Um, right now I'm I'm working on the single writer I've ever translated who is dead and who I can't talk to and that is different um, psychologically, because I, you know, normally when you translate, you kind of have to inhabit spaces, places, maybe characters. But in, in this sense, I'm, I'm also having to really in, inhabit the, the writer, which mm-hmm. you always do have to do, but you only have the text to go to in, the, in this case. And I don't think that I'm finding myself being less creative, but I do feel that responsibility more mm-hmm. intensely. So that's one thing. And in terms of place, you know, that is that is possibly the most difficult thing to translate. Because when a Chilean writer, or sorry, when a Chilean reader sits down and reads Ways of Going Home or Poeta Chileno, um, they're reading it within a Chilean context and there are certain things that they take for granted that they understand in a way that an English reader doesn't. Mm-hmm. To me as a reader, that's part of, that's one of the big things that is so interesting about reading and translation is that, is that sense of foreignness, that, that sense of getting inside a place or a, a perspective or a consciousness, a subjectivity, I guess, mm-hmm. that um, is new to me. But that's the thing that you have to navigate as, as, as a translator. You have to make that legible to an, an English reader. And you have to think about, I mean, even though I live in Chile, there are things that, that I still don't take for granted, that I don't necessarily know all of the implications and subtleties. And, you know, I think there's a, there's a line and I think it's ways of going home where, where Alejandro s- says something about, you know, you, you would have to, sit down and think about the difference between an Argentine villa and a Chilean villa, because they're totally different things. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't, when I read that line, I didn't know the difference. I didn't, you know, in Argentina, villa is, is like a slum. It's like a shantytown. It's, it's another word that when it comes up and when I'm translating an Argentine text, I always struggle with how to translate it because the words in English are so weighted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you say slum and that means something. And, and the same thing right now, I'm working with, a, with my student. I, um, I have a student who's really good and he's working on this book by a, a Chilean Mapuche writer, Daniela Catveleo, Pinyen. And she talks a lot, like a lot of her, she, she writes about the, the, the Mapuche 
diaspora, I guess, in, in Santiago, and, and they live kind of in, in these peripheral spaces. And she talks a lot about um, poblaciones de blocks, blocks, which is an English word, but it means something very specific in, in, in Spanish and Chile in this context of the, of the Mapuche settlements in Santiago. Um, and so it, we have struggled so much about how, what's the word for that in English, you know, because you're negotiating all these kind of peripheries and, mm -hmm. uh, and how do you convey that to an English speaking reader? It's, it's really not easy. Yeah. The best thing I can think of at this point is to put a footnote, which I have never done in mm -hmm. any of my translations, but I think we're going to come up with something better. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. I mean, kind of translation in and of itself is quite a quite a curious profession in that the translator and you know, obviously you're the you're the one that can kind of maybe put this into into words slightly better. But the translator is kind of inherently quite peripheral, I think, in in the in the eventual text. Um, and I think from the outside, it looks like quite a sort of almost a, quite a selfless profession. Though when you talk about where the kind of the creativity and the the original kind of idea, perhaps, or the germ of, of an idea lies. Um, so do you, kind of how do you how do you see the kind of the, the visibility of a translator uh, in the in the text that they produce? What kind of how does it feel to then see your work kind of going out there? I know that it's something that you know like the um, the, the like if it's if a if a book is nominated for an international prize and the translator uh, and the and the author will usually share the you know kind of share the the prize money for example. So I mean it is you know there's there's a certain amount of equality there, but it's interesting to kind of talk about how you. Um, kind of how you perceive your role in bringing their work to a wider audience, and you know, kind of the the role of the trend, of the of the author themselves in that you know in that in that same way. Well, that's a big question. Um, I, I feel like I could talk the rest of the podcast about that question. I'm going to try and respond without falling into a therapy session. Um, you know the visibility of the translator is a is a big subject and mm -hmm. and in terms of english translation there are a lot of people who have been working for a couple of generations now to bring more visibility to the to the work of a translator and it has it has ended up i think that it has contributed to i mean for one thing the 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 situation of a translator has improved a lot of times we're named sometimes even on the cover uh, these days, a, a translation contract includes royalties for the translator. Um, and more and more, we are named in reviews. Um, there's, there's more of a translation community. Um, and prizes also make a big, make, make a big difference. Um, you know, the Booker Prize is, is huge for translators because it's a, it's a big prize. It, it's, a lot of people follow it. The prize money is split equally between the translator and the writer, um, and it has been. That's a relatively recent thing. It has been mm -hmm. for about the past six or so years. For me, you know, I've, I we with Samantha Schweblin, a writer who I translate, we were on the shortlist once, and we've been longlisted three times for that book for that prize. And when I went to London and and participated in all of that, it it is strange. It's it feels weird to be put basically on the same level as the writer. It's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. 
you know, my immediate thought is I don't deserve this. On the other hand, I do have this activist side of me that thinks people should read more in translation. I really want people to read more in translation. Translation in general within the, the publishing world is peripheral, no? Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and, I, and I would like it to be more read. And so I think that that kind of prize, I mean, I, I don't think it, I know it. it. Objectively speaking, people read more translation because of the Booker Prize. And so when I take, when I stop thinking about myself and I start thinking about translation in general, I think those kinds of things really do serve a purpose. You know, in terms of the selfless, selflessness of the translator, I think that's, there, there is a, a, it's true and it's also not true. Um, I have always been a, a big reader. And if you had told my 15 year old self in Richmond, Kentucky, that someday I was gonna be translating and, and friends with the most interesting Latin American writers working today, I would have thought that was really cool. <laughs> you know, I really love what I do. I believe in it. Um, I like to work toward promoting the, the reading of these books in English. I, I, think it's, I, I think it's important. I also, it's, I don't make myself as vulnerable as a translator. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a comfortable position. I'm not as, as open, I'm not putting myself out there the same way that a writer does. You know, I, I'm working with books that I love. And if you're, if you're a big reader, that's, that's great. You know, the role of a translator encompasses many things. On one hand, you're a writer because there is a creative aspect. On the other hand, you, you never have to sit in front of a blank page, you know, which is great. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you also work kind of as an, as an agent, um, bringing these writers, representing them to, in, to, in, with new audiences. Um, you kind of work as a cheerleader, or an activist, you know, saying these are the books that I want people to read. It, it, it's, it's like a, it's a cultural worker and, and it brings different satisfaction, different kinds of fulfillment than writing, but very, very valid ones and very satisfying ones. But as, a, as an avid reader then, and somebody who's interested in, in Latin American uh, literature in general, it's interesting that obviously you kind of, you can downplay to a certain extent the role of the translator or the role of translation as a, as a profession, but only a tiny kind of fraction of the books, even that come out of Chile are translated into English, for example. And, you know, particularly, you know, from my, from my perspective, in terms of nonfiction, a lot of the things that I'd like to, I'd like to read and just don't feel I have the time to read in Spanish. I think that'd be a brilliant thing to read in English, you know, and obviously they're never are very unlikely in a lot of cases to be translated. Um, so you do have quite a lot of power, I think, in, in terms of you, your kind of almost setting the you know the almost setting the reading list for um for, for english speaking audiences so i think the translator obviously you know once you get to the the stage you're at and you're able to work with the authors that you want to work with you get to almost kind of choose the authors you want to work with and, and base that on almost your relationship with them as well i think is, is there's a certain amount of kind of um you know you do have quite a, quite a large mandate for what you can you know kind of translate for english speaking audiences mm -hmm. yeah that's that's true um you know i like to think of it as as creating my own little canon you know like i like these days I, I really do work only with writers who i love and and i feel really lucky to do to be able to do that um i 
do what I wish I could do more. I wish I could translate more. You know, translation is very time consuming. And I do feel like there are a lot of writers who I'd I would love to translate and I just don't have time because I because this is another thing that is important to me as a translator, that once I start working with someone, it's really important to me, ideally, to keep working with them. Um, and not everyone thinks that way. I wish that I could work more as, as, as in that agent role, you know, reading a lot, recommending books, saying, I want to translate this, or y'all should publish this. Um, the, the, sad, the sad fact is that I, don't read much outside of what I translate. That's obviously an exaggeration. I try to keep reading in English, and I and I am always reading in Spanish. But but I always feel like I should do I should be doing more. You know, one thing that I think has changed in recent years is that there is more immediate translation. I feel like editors are looking for new writers in a way that maybe just in a generation ago they weren't. They waited for writers to be consagrado, like, um, like really well-established before they were published in translation. Um, and now I think that translation is seen as potentially more commercial than it used to be because we have these phenomenon, this, you know, writers like um, Bolaño, Nausgaard, Elena Ferrante, even Alejandro Sambra or Samantha Schweblin, people who, people who I translate, who are commercially successful, I think that I think that that is relatively recent for writers to be published simultaneously, relatively simultaneously in Spanish and in English. And I really like that, and I want to I want to I want that to keep happening. And do you sorry? Do you find that um, you know to to that extent then that you you know, people are looking for more, perhaps more experimental things. People are looking for translations. Do you think then that a translator can then become popular in their own right? And people say that I want to, I really enjoyed Megan McDowell's translation of Zambra, for example. And if you start working with a new, a new, a new writer or, or whatever, surely people are going to think that that's quite a valuable, you know, it's quite a valuable asset to a, to a publishing house. You know, to have a translator that is popular, that has um, a good reputation. That's, you know, to kind of turn things on its head a little bit. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about the kind of publishing industry in a second. But does that kind of happen as well? Do you think that people are looking for certain translators that they can then kind of, you know, trust on, you know, kind of trust into um, to kind of, you know, write good translations that people are going to want to buy as well? Yeah. You know, in terms of readers, I honestly have no idea how much that happens. Um, it's a good, it's a good question. You know, I I see people saying stuff like that. I'm not on Twitter, but you know, occasionally I there's a comment that reaches me that says, uh, you know, I want to read everything Megan McDowell has translated. I find that very personally rewarding, but but I really don't think that there are many, that many people out there who pay attention to the names of translators. You know, that's why I don't I don't get caught up with putting my like, I don't care if a publisher puts my name on the cover, you know, because I know that it's not my name that's selling a, a book. And, and I have noticed that it tends to be independent publishers, smaller presses that do put my name on the color because, cover because maybe it maybe it will make a difference if you're introducing a new writer. Um, but, you know, no one, no Alejandro Sombra book is going to have my name on the cover. Maybe if it's an, a, an unknown writer, my name can make a small difference. But in, but in terms of publishers, yeah, I, I think I have a good relationship with the publishers that I've worked with. And 
and they obviously pay more attention to to that and writers too you know i get a, i get a lot contacted by a lot of writers who who see me probably largely wrongly as an entree into the english speaking world you know they think if i can be translated by megan mcdowell then i'm going to be published in the new yorker obviously that's not true but but maybe there are people who look at it from the outside and and they think that that's true Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting because um, I think that kind of gets to the heart of what we we're talking about before in terms of the firstly the selflessness of the translator, but also the kind of yeah the visibility as well, which is obviously a sort of perennial debate I think in in translation. Um, but then if we talk a little bit as well about the kind of the publishing industry as you as you have done um, a bit so far. Um, you say, I read another interview in which you'd said that, you know, kind of the Spain was always a sort of intermediary for Latin American um, uh, writers. It would, you know, translations would go through there and then they would sort of filter back uh, and be translated in, uh, into English. Do you see a kind of decentralization of that all happening? Do you see Latin American publishing houses getting more exposure, more coverage, more independent publishers as well that you can then work with? And then, you know, these books can basically go straight into the into the English speaking language once identified by uh, translators that want to work with them? Um, yeah, I, that's a good question. And, you know, I'm not an expert on these on these matters, but I do think, I would say that the most interesting publishing is being done by independent presses. And I think that's true in the US too. Um, to a large extent, you know, the first time I heard about Mariana Enriquez wasn't when she was published at Anagrama. It was when, you know, my friend Diego Zuniga, who I also translate, his small press, Monteceros, published a tiny book of her short stories. And he said, this is a great writer. Pay attention to her. Um, and then, you know, I ended up working with her. I think those are the, those are the, the, those are the presses that are, that are doing the most interesting work. And, and it's the same phenomenon in, in the U.S., like, the independent presses, the smaller presses are the ones that take chances. They're the ones that are looking for new voices, for experimental voices. And, um, you know, sometimes things pass unnoticed and other times they're really successful. And when they're really success- successful, then comes the, the grua, they call it, you know, where the, the claw comes in and takes it to a large press. And, you know, I think this is part of what I'm talking about with translation be- becoming more of an immediate thing. Maybe, maybe books don't necessarily have to go through the, the big presses in, in Barcelona anymore. Maybe as there's more interest in, in translation and, and it becomes more of a conversation and it becomes more inter- in immediate, um, we, we can skip that intermediate step and go straight from, you know, mm-hmm. Laurel in Santiago to, um, open letter in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, and these are both small independent presses and it can still work. It's still a model that works. You know, I, I talk about my writers and in, in the books that I translate being commercial. And I do publish like Alejandro, Samantha, Mariana, they publish with some some larger presses. But this but this is all relative, of course. You know, these are not, they're never going to be bestsellers. W- when I say commercial, I mean commercially viable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and there are a lot of ways to make something commercially viable. And I'm basically contrasting that, uh, this, this idea of commercially viable, not with bestsellers, but with um, 
I don't know, acad academic publishing, which I think translation used to be more tied to academia, maybe people who had a specific, maybe more academic or more academic interest in, in Latin American literature. Mm -hmm. But now it's becoming more commercially viable, which is not a very punk rock thing to say, but, but, I, but it is something that I'm happy about because I think it means more people will be reading in translation and, and I think that's always a good thing. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, you know, if we're talking about kind of changes in, in the industry as well, one of the things that obviously we can't, you know, it's sort of ever present at the moment and, and, and rightly so is that there are more and more uh, female authors who are getting their, their works translated as well, more and more who are getting their, um, their books published. Um, obviously in Chile, that was one of, the, one of the big things over the last couple of years, um, going back to 2018 and obviously you know, a long time before and it's, it's been ever present uh, since was this kind of feminist takeover movement uh, across Chilean universities um, that's been replicated in, in different forms and um, you know its own kind of genesis as well in other countries across Latin America um, and one of the demands there was uh, kind of more female authors on reading lists and again that's you know perhaps academic literature um, but that was that was a really interesting time where people were kind of really coming to terms with the fact that this was you know a sort of structural issue rather than uh, you know, rather than something that was, you know, perhaps done by design. Um, how do you see these, you know, you've translated a lot of, um, you know, prominent contemporary female authors as well. Do you see this, you know, this, this change kind of happening? Is it happening quickly enough? Are you seeing more uh, female authors getting a chance to have their, have their works kind of taken to a large, larger audience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, also a very big topic. Um, you know, I think, definitely think things are changing. I think it's about damn time they did. You know, literature has always, always, always been very male dominated. And, and, we, and I think the idea of, of a writer, of an artist, of a creator, of a genius has always been male. Traditionally, people, whether that's readers, editors, writers themselves, have not been very open to reading about female subjectivities, you know there's this idea of chick lit or women's literature that was read by women, but not by men. And I think that today what's happening in the, in the edit, in the publishing world and the editorial world is mirroring what's happening in the culture at large, which is a real change in awareness and perspective and consciousness that wants to, or not even wants to, that just organically in, is more inclusive. And that includes female subject subjectivities is, is the only way I can think of to say it. I think editors are definitely looking for female writers. It, I don't even think it, people have said to me, Megan, mm -hmm. give us, bring us female writers. Um, and, and it's amazing because once you start looking for them, there are such great female writers. There's a wealth of them. And I think, it's dangerous to ghettoize. Um, there's a tendency to, to kind of ghettoize this because people were very aware of the change and, you know, but people still talk about female writers. You go to a, a book fair and there's a round table and it's all women and they're talking about the place of women in literature. But the place of women in literature is just literature. And and I think we're, go, we're like making this transition now. and. And there's no longer any need to separate 
and specify this is these are women writers and these are writers you know um and i think it's it's been really interesting for me to to watch because i grew up with that very masculine idea of the writer you know i didn't seek out i've always considered myself a feminist but i didn't seek out female writers and now i think of myself as a younger writer as a younger reader and i'm astonished by that you know my favorite writers were cortazar i really loved hemingway and faulkner i i don't know like these really macho masculine writers and and i think it's great that in future generations like in the current generation and in future ones there are going to be more female great female writers that are on the tip of our tongues because in the past you know you 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 want to talk about the great writers and the ones who come to mind are men and i really want that to change i, I and i think it is changing but it's just the beginning of a change because while i who am very involved in in translating and in in publishing i see this change if you go talk to a reader on the street it's it hasn't changed that much you know there most of them most most people will still immediately think of um the 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 great male writers especially in the, like in in the english speaking world if you start talking about latin american literature who are the names they're going to talk about Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, Neruda, Borges, maybe Bolaño. And, and in, a, in a few years, or maybe a couple generations, I really think that Samantha Shrevelin is going to be on that list. But it's still, it's still going to take many years before women are really incorporated into the literary consciousness. So people who think that, oh, you know, all that's being published these days are women or there's I, i'm trying to choose my world my words carefully here but there there can be a backlash to this you know and not just i'm not just thinking about vargas llosa saying that um you know including more women in reading lists is is a cheapening of the literary culture there, there, there are people who question this and they think that, that women are being published just because they're women. And that is very much not true. And even in the case that it were true in some cases, that's okay because, you know, we've published a lot of inferior literature by men in the past. And, you know, I don't, I think that if, if that's the worst thing that happens as a result of this change in consciousness, then we're not doing so badly. That's that's really interesting that you say that, you know, kind of women aren't being published because they're women, but they weren't being published before because they were women, you know, so this is something that's, uh, uh, do, do you then see yourself as a translator? I know you tend to work with contemporary writers, um, but do you see an opportunity there to go back and say, that you know they were you know women women haven't just started writing women were writing brilliantly they weren't being published now they can be translated is there an opportunity to go back and take some of these writers and say you know kind of look what's going on this isn't this isn't a new generation of women this is a generation they're getting published absolutely yes absolutely i think that's a that's a project that is yeah that that should be pursued i think there's a, a whole wealth of books by female writers that probably were overlooked in their in their own cultures, in their own languages and, and countries, and, and and that definitely were never translated. 
it's true that I tend to work with contemporary writers and, and that is something that interests me, but, but I definitely think that someone, possibly me, um, should go back and, and really spend some time trying to, to rediscover those writers who have been overlooked. And there are examples of, of, of people who are doing that. Uh, Ebe Huart, who is an Argentine writer, who had a long trajectory and is, is, is kind of being rediscovered now in Spanish. She just died a couple years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And now she's been published in, in English for the first time with Archipelago, translated by Maureen Shaughnessy. And that's an example of, of something that should and hopefully will happen on a much larger scale. I mean, there are inf infinite uh, female writers who haven't gotten the, their dues and there's a lot of work to be done there for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, well, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I think that's something that really can be, can be taken up. Um, and then to sort of round out the conversation then, um, you said you're working at the moment on Poeta Chileno, which is a long, a longer book by Alejandro Sambra. Um, what other projects are you working on at the moment? Um, well, so I've, I have two kind of longer novels um, by two writers who I have worked with on several books. Uh, this uh, Poeta Chileno by Alejandro Sambra, which is just a wonderful book. It's hilarious. It's beautiful. It's unique. And, and I just have loved working on it. And, and then there's another long novel by Mariana Enriquez, but called, um, in English, it's good. It, I think it will be called um, Our Share of Night, Nuestra Parte de la Noche, which is another book that I absolutely love that plays, I, ha, I, I, have, I have a lot of interest in kind of the horror genre and the, the kind of supernatural strain that runs through Latin American literature. And, and Mariana is just a master of this. And, and this is also a really long novel, a masterpiece. It won the Premio Herralde last year. And so these are two very different worlds that I've been submerged in, you know, working over the past year. And then I have some shorter projects. Um, I, I mentioned uh, the one writer who I've worked on who is deceased, who is Juan Amar, who was a Chilean writer who, who was writing in the early 30s. He's a writer, who, he's male, but he definitely did not get his due in the time that he was writing. He was a very experimental writer. And, and the Chilean literary culture didn't know what to do with him at the time. And, um, but he's ended up be having a lot of influence and he's kind of a, a cult writer. He wrote four short books. And then when he didn't get the, not given the, his dues, he stopped writing or stopped publishing mm -hmm. and spent the rest of his life working on a giant thousand page tome called Umbra that hasn't been, it's been, barely been published in Spanish and definitely not in mm -hmm. English. Anyway, long story short, uh, it's now coming out in English, which I'm really excited about. So mm -hmm. this is another project that I started working on in my master's program. So it's one of the first things I started with. Mm -hmm. And then I um, have kind of continued going back to it over the course of these 10 years. And now it's finally seeing the light of day. So, and then uh, the last thing I'm working on is, is, an, is another book of Samantha Shrevelin short stories, mm -hmm. which I need to finish very soon. And, and 
I don't know if you've read her short stories, but they are beautiful and disquieting. And this is this is a, a kind of shorter book of short stories. It's seven. It's called Seven mm -hmm. Empty Houses. And I think that is all that I'm working on right now. That's quite a lot, to be fair. So. It's a lot, yeah. And then just just quickly, then as a as a kind of final question, you you talked about your you know you're very happy with the relationships you have with the authors that you that you're writing uh, you're that you're translating. But you know if you were to kind of look back on your body of work at the at the end of your career, kind of you know whenever you decide to to call you know call it an end, um, are there any kind of authors at the moment that you're looking at that you'd like to say that you know that was part of the sort of the Megan McDowell sort of portfolio or you know do you, are you looking are you still looking for writers that perhaps aren't well known at the moment haven't even written their books yet you know is, is that the kind of writer you're looking for um that's a good question it's a difficult one I the, this the book that I mentioned earlier Pinyin is not something that like I'm having my student work on it so it's not going to be within my um mm -hmm. oeuvre but it but it is indicative of what I'm kind of looking for this is a short book of, of short stories, but I'm really interested in seeing what she does next, you know, what her novel is like, for example, you know, and, and she's a younger female writer. She was a poet and, and, and she's, she's now venturing into prose. She's a Mapuche writer. Um, and I, I think that I will always be on the lookout for something that maybe does come from outside the the larger publishing world, mm -hmm. something that maybe is going unnoticed, something that is maybe portrays other subjectivities is the only word I can think of, I guess, in this case, Mapuche. Um, and I, I also gravitate towards experimental uh, writing, things that kind of play with what the idea, what, what, what a story can be, like the different forms that a story can can take while still um, roping in the reader, while still being very readable. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then, you know, I, I am definitely interested in, in books or stories that deal with cultural themes in interesting ways, non-didactic mm -hmm. ways. Um, I am very interested in horror. Like I, I do, I have very specific um, interests, I guess. Basically, I guess you're always just looking for things that surprise you. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm looking for anyway. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. I think it does. No, it definitely does. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Anyway, so um, Megan, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to, to talk about translation uh, and all of your all of your authors at the same time so yeah thank you very much and uh, looking forward to seeing thank you, you in very Santiago. Much. it's been fun yes let's do that that was literary translator megan mcdowell in conversation with john bartlett thanks very much to megan for her time you can find some links to her work in the show notes if you enjoyed this episode of miradas please do leave a rating or a review in your preferred app as that helps us to reach more listeners. You can get in touch and follow us on social media at Miradas Pod, and we'll be back with more episodes before too long. Take care and see you soon.